Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty. And I'm Andrea Dresch. And we're two political reporters here in D.C. who are going to do something radically different. We're not going to obsess about Donald Trump. That's right. Today we are digging into the GOP's relationship with women and the general lack of female representation from the Republican Party in Congress. Megan Malloy from the Republican Women for Progress joins the show to talk about why more women don't run on the right and how the GOP might just be to blame. I'm not surprised. I think it is upsetting. Um, I will say that, you know, there are still more Republican women running than there ever have been in the past. Then we've got Aaron Sherrockman to walk us through some of this fall's campaign ads. He's the executive editor of PolitiFact, and he's going to break down the half-truths and pants-on-fire claims from the campaign trail. You know, it's going to be nice here six weeks before Election Day that we can actually get into a little substance, start talking about what's true, what isn't true, help you, the listener, who are always focused on help you figure out what you need to believe and what you shouldn't be believing. Helpful for us, too. We see a lot of these ads. All right. You ready, Andrea? Let's do it. So, you know, on last week's show, we took a look at what we learned about the Democratic Party after their primaries. And this week, we wanted to take a look at the GOP. And what did we learn about that party after the primaries? And we wanted to focus on something in particular, the women running for office under the Republican banner or the lack thereof. We have seen this huge spike in Democratic women not just running but winning nominations to the Democratic Party. And we haven't really seen a corresponding spike for the GOP. And I think that has also become apparent this week, not just in the candidates running, but the people who hold office now during the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings when there isn't a single female GOP senator. This is something that is a challenge for the party politically. You know what? Not just in the the long term, but in the short and medium term, too. And so we want to bring on Megan Moy. She is the co-founder of the Republican Women for Congress. Uh, She was previously chair of the Republican Women for Hillary. Yes, Hillary Clinton. Has Uh, the unique resume of Bush, McCain, Romney, Clinton presidential campaigns. Maybe the only person in the world (laughs) with that that alumni list. Maybe the only person putting it on their LinkedIn. Hey, so Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you all for having me. So, Megan, I want to share a statistic with you, and I want to get your reaction to it. This comes from Dave Wasserman uh, of the Cook Political Report. If you don't follow Dave, I highly recommend that you do that. He had this stat on September 6th of the non-incumbents running for the House. So all basically, if your party doesn't have an incumbent and you had a primary, of all those uh, Democrats, there were exactly half of their non-incumbent nominees were women. There's 127 out of 254, it's 50%. For the GOP, it was 34 out of 193. That's an enormous difference, 50% to 18%. All of the people appearing on the House ballot for Democrats, 43% of them are women. For Republicans, it's just 13%. What's your reaction to that? I will say that, you know, though there are so many fewer Republican women running than, than Democrat women this year, there are still more Republican women running than there ever have been in the past. So while we aren't quite uh, to our peak, I do think that we, we are seeing some improvement. But, you know, this, this is kind of to be expected when you have a leader of the party that speaks about women the way that he does, when you have policies that the, the party and its members are putting forward that treat the women the way that they do. And it's a cyclical situation. You know, we, we don't have the institutions in place to recruit women, to train women, to fund women. We have 
almost none compared to the institutions that DIMS have and have been in place for so many years. So I think until we fix some of these problems, we're just not going to see the same numbers of women. And of course, you know, as, as this cycle kind of continues, we have fewer women in Republican leadership. We've almost no women in Republican leadership. And so the women that are running for office or thinking about running for office have no role models and have no one to look up to and no one to, to kind of ask for help. Well, you know, and, and I want to get into the reasons in a bit. I, I just my question is, you know, how deep does this problem run? You know, my stats are about this cycle. You point out that there actually has been a small uptick in the number of Republican women running and actually winning nominations for the House. But this is not just a, a problem of this cycle, obviously. You're also seeing female candidates being kind of harassed on Twitter by Trump and by so many of the other Republicans. So I think that there is some hesitancy to run for these women, even though they might feel like they need to for the party or for their fellow woman. But, you know, they don't want to be attacked on, on Twitter. They don't want their family to be sent death threats. I think we've talked a lot about this in the past is generally whichever party wins the presidential election, they tend to lose a number of seats in the midterms. But just kind of the nature of cycles, I think they're they're kind of nervous about, you know, blowing it all on this year when chances are kind of against them in the first place. Yeah, we were hoping that you could talk us through some of the primaries this cycle. We've seen a lot of women, for example, there was Jennifer Starber running in Texas who, running as a Republican, she came out first thing and said, you know, yes, I'm a lifelong Republican. Yes, I'm running as a Republican, but I voted for Hillary because I don't think that Trump is the direction the party should be going. Uh, Trump is not the Republican Party that I identify with. And she lost her primary. I think the nature of closed primaries that we're seeing right now is that they're going to the extremes on both sides. And some of the candidates that are excellent moderates that would have really good, I think, chances of winning the general are losing their primaries because they've just gone to such extremes. And I think that especially has hurt a lot of female candidates because they do tend to be more moderate. If you could be more specific for us, Megan, what what issues do you think the party is moving too far or too conservative on that maybe a lot of women are more comfortable with? Uh, everything. <laughs> is that an answer? <laughs> it's a good answer. No, it's a pretty good answer, actually. I mean, you, you look back at the 2012 autopsy that the party wrote itself, and one of the main issues that it had was that the party has to do better with women and with minorities if it's going to continue to win elections and survive as a party. And um, I think doing better with women specifically means obviously progressing on women's issues, whether that's paid family leave, that's pro-choice laws, kind of giving women the option to uh, choose what they do with their own bodies. Polling suggests that women on both in both parties uh, below a certain age are very much in favor of, of, of pro-choice more liberal social issues. And I think that the party has yet to realize that and is losing younger voters across the board, but especially younger women. You don't hear people referencing the 2012 autopsy uh, too too often anymore. That feels like a that feels like a relic in the GOP now. Well, it is because they've totally forgotten about it. I mean, I think this is something that a lot of the John McCain, Mitt Romney, George W. Bush types of Republicans really took to heart because they they still had this image of the big tent Republican Party that, you know, if we're going to continue to be the party of Lincoln, we have to um, be welcoming to women and minorities and, and these groups that the party is really very hostile to right now. And what, that was only six years ago? The party doesn't care at all about women and minorities. In fact, they seem to dislike women and minorities right now. So, uh, yeah, it's a relic because they they've absolutely forgotten about it and uh, have purposely forgotten about it. And we're in the middle of a contentious Supreme Court hearing right now. What are some of the practical implications of this on Capitol Hill in that case and in others? There was a poll that came out, uh, I think, January, February of this year, showing that 35 percent of 
suburban female Republican voters that voted for Trump are now regretting their vote uh, and would vote differently in 2020. That's a huge number of voters. And I think that is exactly the constituency that is really touched by, by these women's claims of sexual assault from Brett Kavanaugh. And I think that in some of these races and the senators that are up for re-election, if their voters see that they are just ignoring these claims of sexual abuse and that their senator votes in favor of him, regardless of all of this, I have to imagine they're not going to vote for that senator again. So uh, I think a lot of concern on Capitol Hill that this Supreme Court nomination kind of goes beyond the Supreme Court and, and really uh, is almost an attack on women and especially on these more moderate suburban Republican female voters. You know, I, I take it that it's a lot deeper than Trump. This isn't something that just appeared when Donald Trump hit the scene. What to you stands out as some of the long-term problems that uh, women in the party have faced toward running for office? Yeah, I mean, you look at a group like Emily's List. Emily's List uh, does an excellent job at going you know, as far down as the school board level to recruit women, to ask women to run, to train women on how to run, and to give women money to run for office. They've been enormously influential this cycle for Democrats, enormously influential. Yes, and, and they're influential across the board, you know, from, from all levels of elections here. And Republicans don't have a group like that. And I, frankly, I think it's because they don't care and they don't, they don't recognize the need to uh, have more female representation within the party. I, I think beyond that, there, there are just even so many visuals that are turning women off from being a part of the Republican kind of party. You look at the healthcare uh, conversation picture that took place uh, in the White House however many months ago, and this is a conversation about huge national healthcare issues, several of which only affect women, and the only people at the table are old white men. Like, everything else aside, I think that the party doesn't realize that that is a bad visual, but when you don't have women at the table, uh, I think policies are made that, that really kind of push women away from the party. What kind of help could a group like yours offer women? Yeah, so we're, we're trying to be uh, an Emily's List, albeit we're, we're much smaller, but we, we think we're, we're mighty at our current size. Just everything from simple policy training programs. You know, the first step is getting women engaged in policy conversations. I think Democrats have been so good about just holding salons for women to talk about policy issues that they care about, and the Republicans don't. Um, you know, they may have their junior league uh, get-togethers or, or some of these other social groups, but they're not sitting around talking about tax policy and healthcare policy. If they do, it's only in D.C. So to give women the tools to be able to have educated policy conversations is huge. Uh, so we've been holding a number of policy training courses, everything from environmental policy to tax policy, immigration policy, just to make women feel comfortable uh, in that environment, especially now that the races are so contentious and can really threaten their families and their career, I think, is so important. Is there any room for optimism? I am optimistic. I just speaking to women around the country, whether they're running for office, whether they're starting kind of collegiate groups like ours that are pushing back against the administration, there, there is a fire out there. And, you know, the, the, the country has never been one of extremes. I think we have always been a country uh, with, with a majority of moderate voters and, and moderate candidates. And um, I think that once we kind of get past this, this era of republicanism and uh, the younger generation, even within the party, kind of begins to, to move past and take over, the women that are in the party and that are energized and are running for office right now, I think they're, they're the future of the party. And there, there is power in numbers, but I think there are also some that are small 
yet mighty, uh, and I feel like that's what we're going to see. Cautiously optimistic? Talk to me in, in uh, November, and we'll, we'll see where we are. I think we might just do that. Hey, Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you all so much. Andrea, I was struck by her answer when I asked, you know, what positions are the Republican Party moving too far to the right on for some women? And she said everything. And it's like, well, that, that's, that sounds like a difficult thing to overcome because I'm not sure that the party is going to move back to the center anytime soon. And because a group like Emily's List focuses on where you get these people through primaries, that's traditionally where groups like that focus. If the party is moving out of step with women on all of these issues, it would be much harder to get a female candidate through a primary, it would seem. Well, that's a, that's a great point. And, I, and, you know, she had mentioned Emily's List and the lack of a conservative counterpart, at least with the, the, the resources, the considerable resources that Emily's List have. And I'll never forget my colleague, my old colleague, Simone Pathé at Roll Call in the 2016 election cycle actually looked into this question, looked into why aren't there more women holding off or running for office, and why isn't there an Emily's list? And she actually was told, look, that's kind of not how we do things in the Republican Party. We're about the free market, right? And a group like Emily's List or a GOP equivalent of that um, is like interfering with the market. And so there are these ideological problems, I think, that, that get in the way of the GOP achieving what is a very reasonable political goal of having more women in office, which really could help them out long term in the medium term and heck in the short term, too, politically speaking. Absolutely. So before we get to our next segment, we wanted to tell you about something pretty cool going on in one of our McClatchy newsrooms. Sportsbeat KC is the Kansas City Star's five-day-a-week sports podcast, bringing you episodes on the Chiefs, Royals, Sporting KC, and college football and basketball every afternoon, Monday through Friday, in time for your commute. Search for Sportsbeat KC on SoundCloud to listen or subscribe through your favorite podcasting app. Now back to the show. It is the last Tuesday in September, and you know what that means. We've got PolitiFact executive editor Aaron Sharrockman on to walk through some of the biggest falsehoods of September. This is a particularly exciting episode. We're only a month and a half out from the election. Aaron, what have you got? Yeah, um, uh, we're trying to drill down to a lot of these key swing congressional races, both on the House and the Senate level. And if there's one ad we're seeing over and over again, it's uh, Democrats attacking Republicans for their votes to essentially repeal Obamacare. And looking at one particular point, uh, which is the idea that a lot of those votes would strip insurance protections for pre-existing conditions. We have heard that one, too. Tell us what's up with that ad. We've seen this in many places. One place where we checked this recently is in Ohio 1. It's a competitive uh, district in Cincinnati. Steve Shabbat, the Republican, it's a district that Trump won by 6.6 percentage points. Now, Shabbat here, uh, his campaign offered what I would consider a novel concept, which was basically, I voted for those laws or those bills knowing that they wouldn't become a law. Uh, and uh, essentially saying, I've always wanted to protect pre-existing conditions, but I cast those votes knowing that they would not pass the Senate uh, because it was uh, in Democrat control at the time and because uh, Barack Obama was the president, meaning he would certainly veto any kind of potential to kind of overturn the health care law. I mean, Aaron, that is certainly a novel argument. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good argument substantively or for that matter, politically. Yeah, I mean, I think what we would say is, you know, it's hard for us to kind of read the minds of politicians. So votes uh, to us carry a lot of weight. 
And certainly, in this case, he, he cast several votes that would uh, strip insurance protections for pre-existing conditions. Now, we've seen this claim made in other places uh, in, in key Senate races. Uh, a lot of times, it depends on the way things are phrased. The one big caveat here is that when we're talking about pre-existing conditions, we're only talking about people in the small group or the individual market. These are the people, essentially, that buy the insurance themselves. It doesn't affect people uh, on Medicare or Medicare. It certainly doesn't affect people who get their health insurance through their employer. Uh, so it's a small group that faced this problem if Republicans kind of had their way uh, and Democrats are still pouncing on it. But watch out because sometimes it, Democrats can make this more widespread or sound bigger than it actually is. But in this case, Pureval was pretty uh, clean in what he said, and that's why we rated the claim mostly true. It sounds like that's pointing back to the 2015 votes. Are any of these focused on the healthcare plan that the House passed last year? A little bit, but because of course, if someone with a pre-existing condition uh, bought a policy on the insurance exchanges, but that lapsed for more than 63 uh, days, the insurance company could charge a higher premium. There were kind of measures that tried to affect pre-existing conditions. None went as far as the full repeal that uh, the congressional Republicans tried to tried several times to get through Congress. Okay, well, let's transition from Ohio 1 to the Missouri Senate race. Uh, One of the most preeminent, we're one of the most vulnerable Democrats. One of the ones that we talk about a lot in the McClatchy office. (laughs) Casey Star folks here. One of the most vulnerable Democrats, Claire McCaskill, up for re-election, fighting for her political life against Republican Josh Hawley. Here's a claim that the Republican made. Claire McCaskill receives the second most contributions from insurance companies in the entire Senate. Aaron, what say you? We rated this claim mostly true. Um, the long story short, according to Open Secrets, kind of, you know, the authoritative source on this stuff, McCaskill ranks third among uh, current sitting senators. Uh, when Holly made the claim, she was second, so uh, really no real points off there. Where this might get confusing is a little bit of I would just say, uh, kind of a deception used by the Holly folks. When we're talking about insurance companies here, we're not just talking about health insurance. We're talking about all insurers. That's property insurance, life insurance, things like that. So it might be a good talking point, and, and we're certainly, of course, on the truth meter, kind of we, we weigh that literal truth. But as you kind of pull back the layers of this, it may not mean as much as you think it does. And I think those caveats are important. So our next claim comes from Florida, a heated governor's race down there, uh, where Republican Ron DeSantis says that Democrat Andrew Gillum wants to abolish abolish ICE and doesn't believe in doing any type of immigration enforcement. What do you think? This is a classic, what we consider a classic half-true. Ron DeSantis, who was endorsed by Trump, here in Florida and won, uh, you know, the important uh, primary against well-liked agriculture commissioner, Adam Putnam. Essentially, DeSantis here is taking uh, some words from the playbook of Donald Trump and and taking the grains of a fact and going way too far. Andrew Gillum has actually called uh, for replacing ICE with something else. But what he certainly has never said, and there is no record of him saying this, is that he doesn't want to abolish ICE and uh, removing any type of immigration enforcement. Transition to our, our last question here for you, Aaron. And this is one that I found interesting. It's not something that's being litigated on the campaign trail necessarily, but I honestly didn't know the answer to this question. So it is Ro Khanna, who was actually a guest on the show, uh, the California congressman, Democrat from the Bay Area. He said, quote, most Americans don't own stocks. Aaron, what do you say about that? Okay, so 
this is an, a one where probably some people are going to hear our rationale. They're going to be like, what, are you kidding me? We ended up saying this claim was half true. And so some people who read things literally will say it's either true or not. How could it be somewhere in the middle? So let me explain. The reality here is about 52% of Americans have money invested in the stock market. Now, so that would make Rokana here literally incorrect. Most of those people, a majority of within that majority, so to speak, do it through an intermediary, often through their retirement plan, their 401k. And so on the sheer numbers, Kana is wrong, but the broader point he was making has some merit. And so when we put that all together, kind of into the truth meter mix, we shake it up, it comes out, and it came out in this case as half true. It's a fascinating way to, to look at it. I couldn't even have guessed what the percentage was. I, I feel like I could have been at anywhere from 71% or 83% to like, I don't know, 13%. Yeah, I was you really could have told me 5% of people <laughs> didn't. I would Aaron, you could have made up anything. You would have been like, oh, yeah, sure. No, that, that sounds right. That I, sounds I can't right. do that. I can't you, do Aaron. that to you guys. It's too, it, the truth here is important. <laughs> it, it would break the fact checker oath. Alex and I are not particularly personally wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no that, that might shock you, dear listeners, to hear that a couple of journalists aren't super wealthy, aren't maybe part of this 84%. <laughs> Or that the uh, the top ten percent who made, who own eighty four percent of the stocks. Hey, Aaron, uh, a pleasure as always. When we have you back next month, that's going to be just weeks before the election. There was going to be so much fact checking. I think our heads are going to explode with all the campaign ads. Uh, my head is probably already exploding from the thought of it. So yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for doing what you do. Thank you guys. Take care. You know, Andrea, it's it's always good because we're always talking about the politics of something to every once in a while check in on the substance of it see if what we're talking about or what either party is talking about actually is true right these guys kind of keep us honest andrea like you were saying it maybe should be a required internship for every political reporter in dc that before they begin their career they do a sense of politifact they really try to litigate whether the claims that parties make are true or false yeah i think it would make our jobs less stressful now (laughs) so you know when you hear that sound it's time for the lightning round Andrea, you're up first. All right. Here's something that surprised me from our investigative team this week. We're 40 days out from the election, and they talked to some cyber experts who said, well, for one, um, someone from the Democratic House Committee said that they get cyber threats literally every day to their team, whether it's um, someone trying to hack into phone calls or, or campaign technology. But most campaigns say they're too strapped for time and money to actually worry about this. Well, it's, it's such an interesting point, and it's a good reminder of just what you're dealing with campaigns, because I think the average person would assume, right, boy, there's going to be nothing more that we have to worry about if you're a Democrat running for office than cybersecurity, right, after what happened in 2016. The truth is, these things are like shoestring operations, right? They're building the plane after it's taken off, and in the scheme of things, is cybersecurity more important than being able to go on air on broadcast TV the last couple of weeks of the campaign? I think that's a self-evident answer there. Right. And your volunteers are, someone quoted in this story, who used to work on the House Intelligence Committee, says you're working with 23-year-olds. This is like not something you can really police like a House campaign. Okay. Uh, I also am going to give a colleague some props on this with the lightning round. Uh, Kenny Glick, a frequent contributor to this show, wrote an interesting story. You know that Democrats are running a lot of veteran candidates in 2018. What you don't know, perhaps, is that Republicans have maybe crossed the line from legitimate criticism of these candidates to 
besmirching their honor. At least Democrats will charge that. It really is a challenge for Republicans with all these veteran candidates. How do you criticize? How do you try your best to overcome this inherent advantage that they have as a veteran candidate? This maybe shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who watched the Missouri Senate race last year and Republicans on ice trying to attack Jason Kander. And so consequently, it just makes it a bigger problem for Republicans. Andrea, I hesitate to even ask, how did I do? You know, it was totally worth the six or seven seconds that we're going to add on there. It's a good story also. It is, it is a good story. Everyone should check out Katie's story. Andrea, I, I can't believe it. I mean, we're really entering the home stretch here. 40 days. 40 days, six weeks, and we will see you next week. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith, and thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.